Hello, and welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. This podcast aims to help farmers expand your capital, whether social, intellectual, or economic. Investing on and off the farm is hard enough. Here, we will provide insightful stories and resources to help out. Full transparency, this is our shameless way for you to like us and hopes you partner with us down the road. Lastly, there are no ads here. All I ask is you enjoy and share if you find value. Now, on to the episode. You know, running a business has a lot of highs and lows. It's not uh, impervious to other economic conditions. And so to witness the struggle as a business owner, I realized the value of actually having something scalable, something outside of what you're currently doing that helps to generate additional income, additional wealth. Um, and the idea that you could uh, incrementally compound that over time and have that grow um, was, was really fascinating to me. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. Today, we are joined by Marcus Arredondo, an experienced investor and entrepreneur. As the founder and managing partner of Edgewest Capital, a real estate investment firm, he has acquired and managed over 2,000 units or doors, spanning a total of six states. Outside of Edgewest Capital, Marcus has invested in a variety of asset classes, including consumer products, digital compression, agriculture, among others. Marcus, pleasure pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Marcus, let's get into it. What inspired you to get into real estate? So I think the sequence starts uh, really with my dad, who I, I, I caught, I think, the self-improvement bug from. Um, he was he was lo- always looking for you know alternative ways to improve his financial well-being, his own personal well-being. Uh, he's one of the first people that have uh, taken into account a lot of the dietary um commonalities we find in today's world that weren't so common 30, 40 years ago. Uh, but he was a firefighter um, and worked his way uh, into dental school and ended up graduating and, and became a dentist. And um, later in my life, uh, well, closer to junior, senior year in high school, um, he had given me wrist dad, poor dad. And that's really what opened my eyes to sort of the different ways that people tend to fall into these quadrants. Um, and it, it ultimately became clear to me that uh, he's really a highly paid self-employed person. Um, and running a business, especially a business that has healthcare attached to it while you're trying to maintain profits is a challenging thing to see a couple of different ways. One, I think he put himself second uh, in in deference to his patients, which oftentimes put financial strain on him. And, and secondarily, you know, running a business has a lot of highs and lows. It's not uh, impervious to other economic conditions. And so to witness the struggle as a business owner, I realized the value of actually having something scalable, something outside of what you're currently doing that helps to generate additional income, additional wealth. Um, And the idea that you could uh, incrementally compound that over time and have that grow um, was, was really fascinating to me. So after I graduated college, a friend of mine who had happened to get an internship at JLL as a researcher um, sort of said something to me in passing that, you know, it's, it's amazing how much wealth is generated in real estate. And uh, it was sort of a, a third or fourth reminder over the last several years at that point yeah. in my life where, you know, real estate is something that um, is a means to generate uh, some freedom for yourself. Um, so that was the attraction. But I think fundamentally, 
you know, I, I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person, um, not the smartest guy in the room, but maybe not the dumbest. But I had street smarts. I had work ethic. I had toughness and grit. And, uh, I, you know, at the end of the day, I, th I felt like real estate really benefited from that transactionally, relationally, financially, um, because you can run the numbers and that's only part of the equation. You can be talking to people. That's only part of the equation. But to actually run a transaction to actually manage it, to actually get your feet dirty. Um, you know, if you're going in a suit and tie to visit a site um, and you're unwilling to step in mud, I think that's telling you something. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's just something, uh, you know, I always wash my shoes when I get back from a visit because uh, I end up with cobwebs and, uh, and grass stains everywhere because, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get into the, to the weeds there. And it's see all what's part of the on. due diligence process. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, that's, I think that's really what, what generated the interest to be honest. Yeah. So you had, you know, it started when you were real young, Marcus, your dad had you read rich dad, poor dad, great book for any listeners out there. If you haven't read that, pick it up. It's a classic. It's a quick read and you'll get a lot out of it. And it's not what you quite think regarding a rich dad or a poor dad, but it's really how a lot of people were, like Marcus said, highly paid, even if you have a business, you're essentially a highly paid employee. And when you realize that, that these, these businesses are not generating income unless you're working. And Marcus, that's, I think what you were exactly saying. And, and then it took you, you know, three or four, you know, hints, but it's great that you were actually, you know, actively listening to everyone around you, you know, real estate kept popping up, popping up. And then you finally went for it. It sounds like. I did. I did. I, I went, um, my first foray was in brokerage. Um, and I acquired many years in brokerage, uh, before really having the confidence to take this step on my own, uh, where I to have known some of the other avenues that are more available now than they were back when I was starting out. I would certainly, uh, you know, I wish I could have a conversation with myself back then, uh, because I think I could have achieved a lot more and, and, um, benefited from the time horizon starting back then. But, you know, let's get into that. A little bit, what, yeah, you don't mind. Yeah. What, what, what yeah, advice would sure. you give your younger self? Well, first of all, there's so many resources out there today, right? I mean, let's just start with your podcast, right? I mean, they're the, the guests that you have on your, on your show are illuminating different aspects of, you know, what you're involved in, what I'm involved in. Um, so there's a lot of passive learning that you can actually achieve just by tuning in on your drive to work, on your run, on your workout um, through these podcasts. There's so much, there's so many gems out there. Some are wrong, some are right, you know, some are in somewhere in between. Um, and you're going to have to understand that, you know, some people are just making opinions known in the form of a, a, a soundbite that sounds like a fact. But once you get your radar going, you start to understand, you know, where, where the truth may lie relative to you. So that's the first thing. Um, secondly, you know, there's online resources, there's uh, other books. And, and, you know, I'm basically recounting even the fact that, you know, I, when I really started to get into this, I had a false start in 2006 and seven. We started to buy houses before 2008 and the crash happened. And so that was a big learning lesson. And that, you know, to be honest, that really sort of created a, a little bit of a, a massive pause, right? I mean, it, it caused some fear that I really needed to figure out how to overcome. Um, and we, I, you know, despite the fact that I had a lot of brokerage knowledge and understanding of fundamentals in real estate, there was a lot more 
um, you know, on the due diligence side, understanding the macro level economy and how yeah. that plays into the micro level. Um, you know, that, that was all a big learning process. But back to, you know, the advice I would give to somebody is you don't need to wait that long. There's so many resources where online bigger pockets is, a, is, a, is an example where, where you can learn the fundamentals and um, there's books, you know, you, you tune into these podcasts uh, and you, you look at a bigger pockets situation, just, you know, those two avenues between your podcast and bigger pockets itself, you can find an, an immense amount of resources that are uh, either free, relatively inexpensive. And uh, when I started going full bore, it was that hundred uh, percent of the time it was, I woke up, I was reading. Uh, when I went to work, I was listening to podcasts. When I was at lunch, I was listening to podcasts and or reading. When I was going on walks, it was nonstop because it was all that I could consume because I wanted, you know, it. and I, and I would suggest maybe hit pause because you really need to determine whether you want to be an active participant or more of a passive participant. This That's good delineation. So I, was, I was looking at it more on an active side because I, th I thought I could bring a lot of the expertise and experience I brought on behalf of other clients advocating on their behalf um, to potentially our own investors, to myself, to my friends, to my family. Um, so I was looking at it from an active perspective, and I think that required a little bit more integration of what I was learning. But from a passive side, um, you know, real estate at its core is not a complicated industry. I mean, it's bricks and mortar, supply and demand. Um, but as you want to mitigate risk and identify what your time horizons are, um, you start to better understand some of the nuances in it. And those come out in these conversations. And so, uh, you know, you, you can you can pair that education with even sort of, um, you know, retail style investing. Um, you know, you couldn't back 20 years ago, crowdsourcing was not a thing. Crowdsourcing is more available now. And I think a common reframe from that is, you know, at least recently that, you know, it's partnering with questionable operators um, or that, you know, there's a lot of fees associated. You know what? It's all part of a learning process. And so you should never be investing with more than you can bear to lose, first of all. But secondly, um, the way I see it, it's, you know, you're going to have some losers. You're going to have some things that didn't turn out as, as good, but you can start in, in, in smaller amounts than you would need to, if you were to find private placement opportunities. And so as it relates to me 20 years ago, um, you know, where I was stealing for Peter to pay Paul, um, you know, I, I would have loved the idea to be able to put a few hundred bucks or a, a couple of grand into a, a fund of some sort, just to watch it, how it behaves to understand, um, you know, sort of the pros and cons and understand the different areas that you can get involved in. There's debt, there's development, there's industrial, there's retail, there's multifamily, and it can all sort of be overwhelming. But what I would start with as you're listening to people um, is understanding your own risk profile and your own investment profile. And there's a number of ways to break that down, but simply put, um, you know, I always refer to within real estate, there's a like a project management triangle. And in short, it's really that you can get two out of the three normally. One is usually sacrificed. And of the three, I'm referring to quality, um, time, and budget. So I'll just give you an example on ordering 
furniture for a bit, for an asset, right? If you're ordering appliances, for example, you can typically get good quality in a short time frame, but your price is going to go up. Yeah, you're going to pay for it. You can get high quality at a lower cost, but your timeline's going to go out longer. So I think if you think about it in that respect, you need to understand, am I okay being illiquid on this uh, investment for six months, for three years, for 10 years? Am I looking down that horizon? Um, am I okay not getting any cash flow from it? I'm, am I okay just focused on the appreciation versus what I might be getting now? Um, or is it more important that I get some cash flow? Um, where do I see the macro level economy going? Do I believe in retail and industrial and should I be looking at those opportunities or do you believe in multifamily and hospitality, you know, and, um, all of those criteria, I, you know, I don't think you're a one size fits all either. I think it should be viewed through a portfolio lens where, um, dependent upon your own assessment of the, what's presented to you. You know, some might fit different risk profiles and you need to be comfortable. If you're 22, you're going to invest very differently than somebody that's 75. So um, I, I hope that's. Yeah, absolutely. We covered a lot. On- I, I really like that you brought up the that triangle quality, time and budget, because it's such a good framework to use, no matter if you're talking about what, like you said, it can be a couch or it can be a real estate syndication. It could be a sponsor. You could apply that that framework to a lot of different things. And I, I think about it through, like, just think about stocks. Like, they're very liquid. You can convert your cash into a public equity stock very quickly and at a very low price. But is it really the quality investment that you're actually looking for to accomplish the goals of your portfolio, be it cash flow, be it long term appreciation? Like, is that fitting your goals? Maybe, maybe not. Um, But I I just really appreciate, Marcus, that you brought up that framework because, yeah, it's a good one. Thank you. Well, I, I didn't make it up, but I found it increasingly relevant in my life, not only to uh, actual project management, but also to my, you know, my own stress levels. Why am I stressed? Uh, and most of the time, you know, it's, it's because my timeline is cons- constrained and I want high quality and I, 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 I want to exert a, a good amount of effort, but I don't have the time to do it. And so that creates strain on the system. So I need to you need to assess like what you're willing to compromise on um, most effectively. Yeah. Speaking about that, the most effective in your portfolio, you are invested across six states and you briefly touched on mitigating risk. So is there a way that we can think through using this framework of quality time and budget coupled with mitigating risk in outside markets other than your hometown. I have a lot of people listening to this that are, you know, thinking about investing in a real estate syndication, but oftentimes what they're looking at are deals outside of their state because they're in bigger cities where the deals are happening. There's lots of transactions or maybe not lots, but a higher level of transactions than what's occurring in their 5,000 person town, right? So can you walk us through some of your thinking on that? Uh, 
For sure. So I, I got first started buying single family assets in Detroit, Michigan. Um, and it was through wholesalers following tax auction. Um, and so, you know, I, there's a, I'll loosely call it a, a cap rate because it doesn't really apply to single family, but loosely it's a percentage return on the total amount of money spent. And normally that is related to the risk inherent to the area. So when I sold my single family assets in uh, Detroit, they were being sold effectively at between nine and 11% return on the total purchase price. Um, that is from the cash generated, uh, the net operating income, this is after expenses and stuff. Um, that's really what was, that's what the price was. Um, when you're looking at a place like, for example, um, outside of Raleigh, North Carolina in, in the, in the triangle that they, they refer to, um, the return is much, much lower, but the reason is there's a lot more stickiness in that environment. So there's more diversity of employment. Um, there's also a good labor market there because of the diversity of education. You want to understand, is the population increasing? Does the state have um, fundamental incentives that also help to support the municipal incentives to grow um, that population to generate more taxes um, you know, for that area? Is it landlord favorable, meaning you know, is there some consideration to um, you know, the landlord's position in contrast to, to some other states that, that really heavily favor tenants. And, um, you know, I'm looking at this from an investing perspective, right? So all of yep. those things, you know, rent appreciation, why is that rent appreciating? You know, is it, is it something that's there? fleeting? Exactly. Is it, did, did something, is there a two year span where there's some sort of activity going on there? Or is this something that is actually attracting more and more employers and employees? That's really, I think the, the fundamental basis that you look for. Now there's a hundred more nuances beyond that. But um, I would I would sort of look at it from those perspectives. That that to me, um, understanding what the um, labor pool because that labor pool is ultimately going to be a tenant in your asset, right? And so, yep. I, I think I, I look at it from that point point of view. Now, I I know plenty of people that have bought in small markets um, that have done amazingly well. Right. Um, and, I, and I did well, even in Detroit. Um, and there was a higher cash flow component uh, component there, um, which is the trade off. Right. If there's going to be a little bit more risk inherent in the deal or in that area, you should offset that by more cash flow coming through. Um, now, what you won't get in some of those smaller markets is you might sell for the same price you bought it five years ago, maybe inflation adjusted, but you're not seeing a 50 or 60% appreciation growth in another market where you, where you've seen that population grow as well. So um, I don't, I'm not suggesting one is, is better or, or worse. I think it really has to do with your own investment thesis and what you believe in um, and really what's your priority. I mean, if you know something about, you know, main on main six minutes from your house, I mean, nothing can be, that intel that maybe not everybody else has. So I, I hope that addresses your question. I wish I had 
the, yeah. no. the single bullet that 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 tells you exactly what might be the right <laughs> investment. But um, you know, I haven't been flawless in, in my execution, and I continue to learn and and take those lessons and apply it to improving the way I'm, I'm hopefully looking at this. But I think if anyone out there hears that their active partner sponsor says they know it all and has a silver bullet, that's a huge red flag. So I, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. But Marcus, you answered it exactly. I mean, when you think about mitigating those risks, you know, I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking at the macro economic situation. Is that state investor friendly, landlord friendly? Is are people moving there? Why are they moving there? Are they moving there to retire? Are they moving there because it's a workforce job? Those nuances, even in population, can drive asset values when you just think about the sunshine states. Who's moving there? Well, retirees are moving to those states because they want a comfortable retirement. They don't want to deal with the snow anymore. Fair enough. But when you just look at a simple fact that says, oh, this population grew 10%, that's great. But 9% of those are senior citizens. And you just bought a multifamily asset that's primed for 20 to 30 year olds. That might not bode well for the business case of the asset. So just looking at those types of things and answering or asking those questions to the sponsor can can really help you mitigate those those risks down the road. I would agree. I would agree. So what other, I guess, can you give us like a success story in an out-of-state investment that you did, Marcus? And then the the flip side of that, maybe tell us of a, a stinker. For sure. So, um, you know, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll share, we haven't exited this deal, um, but there's a deal in Florida that we have that's performing very well. It's, um, it's in Sarasota and we got great debt on it. Um, there wasn't a ton of, uh, material improvements that were required. It was, it was what I might refer to as blocking and tackling. You know, we were improving units, but at a relatively slow pace, um, we had fixed rate debt. Um, so the leverage was relatively low. Um, and it was in, in an appreciating market. Um, and so it's been controlled very well. We've been fortunate that none of the natural disasters have uh, had any negative effects on the physical structure. We're certainly uh, bearing the burden of the insurance costs that are, um, you know, permeating some of those states like Florida and Texas and Louisiana. Um, and so we've, we've had some strong cash flow. We've had a return of capital event, and I think we'll exit in a, in a really positive fashion uh, when we intend to in another, you know, two to four years. Um, and so that's, that's an exciting project to be a part of and uh, to see the outcome. We've got, a, we've got another deal that's in Georgia right now that was more leveraged um, and had a lot of um, more material um, improvements that were being performed on the asset. Um, and so it was a bigger, it was a bigger turn. It was a reposition rather than, you know, a simple value add deal. So if I were to say, you know, on there's core, which you're buying a, a relatively new asset, 
that's 98% occupied, that's got very low maintenance. And then as you move sort of down the spectrum, you know, there's sort of value add, then we can go to uh, repositioned and then distressed assets and distressed assets can be, you know, that's, it's 0% occupied and you're going to have to renovate all of the units in a short time frame. Um, and so, yeah, the one in Georgia, you know, it's, uh, it, we're battling headwinds that were out of our control. Some of, some of them we've been effective at mitigating, but, um, you know, just like, uh, COVID was not something that anyone could forecast, uh, the ripple effects could not be forecasted either. Um, and so I've had people say, well, of course, you know, interest rates were going to rise. How did you not know that? Well, we, <laughs> yeah. we knew that interest rates, probably would, yeah, interest rates would probably have risen regardless, but, uh, no one could have foreseen with confidence that they would have risen that aggressively. Um, you know, but more important than that is, is just, we've had to face, uh, a tremendous amount of bad debt. So, you know, during the COVID times, uh, we encountered a seller, um, you know, who had put probably less qualified people into the asset and as stimulus money and agency money and cares money started to evaporate, uh, you know, more and more people started falling under the eviction list and the counties were inadequately staffed to, to facilitate those evictions. And I don't like seeing anyone being evicted, but at the same time, you know, this is a business and it's a, it's a contract. It's an agreement where, you know, one person is not fulfilling their end of the, of the agreement. And so, um, you know, that's not the only asset we've encountered bad debt. Um, if you look across the, the board, you know, that seems like a pretty pervasive challenge across most other operators' portfolios as well. And it's a confluence of events that, that really, um, you know, that wasn't something we, we foresaw, you know, and, and I'll be completely honest. It's, uh, we underwrote deals accounting for, let's say, 20 of the most likely, most problematic issues occurring. Um, and we could underwrite for, let's call it seven of them occurring in very close proximity, maybe three or four occurring all at once. What we have been seeing and what we will continue to see on a broader scope, not, not just not relative to me, I'm saying on a broader scope, um, we're seeing a confluence of 15 of those things all happening at once. Wow. And so you know, it's uh, it's going to be challenging for a number of operators to 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 be able to fend that off um, all at once. It's just you know the, it, they're you know unfortunately or fortunately this is a business that's highly dependent on debt, and debt is going to be um, you know those enterprises that are dependent upon debt will have meaningful behavioral changes when the Fed changes interest rates at that aggressive a pace. So, um, you know, other asset classes may not have that, um, but, you know, the, it has, that is a component of the risks entailed in these deals. Yeah, that, that is a huge piece. It's very similar to buying a single family house. As far as the debt goes, you're putting down 20% and the rest is debt and that can be amortized anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30 years. It can be variable rate, fixed rate. And what we're seeing right now is a lot of that bad debt markets that you were talking about, that a lot of it was floating rate 
So the Fed jacked up their rates to fight inflation. And now we are seeing these assets not performing, not being able to pay their debt service essentially. And so all of those are going underwater. Those assets are really going, going under and it's horrible to see. And especially when you just think about the tenant, like I, I got into this business because I liked providing a nice place for tenants to live. It was a win-win situation. They enjoyed the space. I liked getting a little bit of cash flow, the principal pay down, and it was it was good, right? And when you see these things start to happen, it's a real shame. But like you said, it is a business and it's just part of the deal. But this is this is a good point because this is a, a way you can mitigate risk. Like when investors go to their sponsors, they can ask, well, what is the debt that we plan to use on this property? Is it fixed? Is it variable? What is the debt service coverage ratio? Do we have enough income coming in to offset the debt service for the first couple of years? If so, how much? Like these are those are some of the questions that you can ask to think think through that mitigation of risk. Yeah, no question. I you know I'll add to that though. I mean, there's there's a number of other variables in there that um, you know add to the layer of complexity. So, well, just in comparison to single family debt. Um, there's prepayment penalties um, that occur in in, in more institutional level debt. Um, there are uh, lockout periods when you before you can even consider getting out. Uh, there's all sorts of stipulations, and so even if you protect yourself, say for example from uh, interest fluctuation by purchasing a rate cap, um, that doesn't eliminate your inability to refinance at a certain time. And so look, I'll say very loosely for every percentage point increase in interest rate that the Fed has put out there, that resulted in about three to 4% reduced leverage. So simply put, if the interest rate has increased by 5% since they started, it's been more than that, but let's just use 5%. When we could get 75% leverage before, it's starting to, it's looking more like 60% leverage. And those two things are connected, just like you're mentioning the debt coverage ratio. If, if the interest rate goes higher, you've got a lower debt coverage ratio. In order to increase that debt coverage ratio, you need the price to come down, right? And so, or at least the loan amount to come down. And when the loan amount comes down, it makes it more challenging to acquire, particularly when, you know, look, after 2008, 2010, there's been a really good run in real estate and Huge. especially, you know, starting in 2020 when, um, you know, what you could argue really instigated all of this, when money became free, um, you know, it had an even bigger run and investors got very used to really strong returns. Um, and that's great when the going's good. Um, when the one, the going's not good, you got to change your strategy and I will say, um, you know, I think all of us, myself included, I, I invest in these deals passively. I started investing passively. I continue to invest passively beyond just being an active um, operator. But, you know, with, with lower debt, higher interest, we're going to have more reasonable sellers. Um, and I think there's going to be a really good time to be acquiring in the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, I mean, I'm already seeing it now. 
Um, and sure, there's going to be people under duress that um, need to sell. Um, but there's all the, also others that, you know, are come and do. And it, it's time to flip out. It's time to, to move capital around. They've achieved their their returns. Um, so all that to say, you know, I, I don't see it as doom and gloom. I think it's a, I think it's a change in strategy, uh, applying yeah. what we've been able to glean from, you know, all of the struggles that many of us have gone through. And some of us are going to come through uh, unscathed. Some people are going to be scarred up and some people are going to get washed out. Um, and so, you know, look, I think uh, like in life, real estate, so too uh, benefits by resilience and attrition. It's it's oftentimes the last man standing that tends to, to be uh, the beneficiary of all that hard work. And so, I, I you know, look. This real estate is not. You, you mentioned public equities. The the liquid the liquid nature of public equities uh, has a lot of benefits. Um, but you, it can also be. I mean, we saw GameStop. I mean, it, it can be influenced by um, circumstances that are outside the realm of simple supply and demand, proper fundamentals. Real estate is one of those things you can't really hide behind. You're not. You're not uh, outside of somebody being completely hoodwinked and not knowing what they're doing. Most properties are going to trade at a value that's commensurate with its what it's worth. And yep. uh, that's a product of how much money it's generating, where it stands, what's been improved. And um, that's exactly you know, why I if, got into this business. Well, there you go. And, and so it's it's a little bit more like burying the money, uh, having some roots uh, get generated from the seeds you plant and little by little you get maybe some more seeds that you can continue to water elsewhere. Uh, but it, it, it's a long-term game. I, I want to emphasize that to everybody that's involved. And I think a lot of your listeners um, understand that probably better than most uh, being in farming. I mean, to understand the cyclical nature of circumstances outside of your control and having to um, you know, mitigate that to the best of your ability and survive and adapt. Um, those are the ones that are going to be able to exist the longest, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Adaptability, persistence, you have to have them both in farming, both in real estate. You have to be flexible and change your strategy, whether it's a different crop, whether it's intercropping, whether, I mean, there's a plethora of different strategies in farming, same with real estate and if your partners aren't thinking about, you know, how they're going to mitigate risk and how they're repositioning themselves or the asset, you know, th that's a huge red flag. So just keep asking those questions. But Marcus, this has been great. One more thing. How are you positioning when you're having calls with investors who are looking to place capital in real estate in your markets? How are you preparing them? What, what is the thought process that you're walking them through? Um, to, to get them ready for the next 12, 24 months? So I don't know if I would, if I'm qualified to, to tell you what you should be doing to get ready, but uh, I will share all the, the curiosities I have, which is, you know, where, where do you think um, real estate is going? Where do you think the macro economy is going? And we can start with very easy, low-hanging fruit here. Is the Fed going to continue to raise rates? If so, for how long? Um, that's really going to be a fundamental to how you're viewing this. I think, uh, you know, if we're going to continue to be speaking specifically about multifamily, do you believe in, in the, in the thesis that there is greater demand than there is supply, even notwithstanding, 
you know, the number of units that are coming online right now, which is being publicized in the press. Um, do you believe that this is a good that, you know, is resilient to external circumstances like a like a pandemic? Right. I mean, we saw retail. Uh, we've certainly seen office. We've seen hospitality struggle during those times. Um, but, you know, investing in hospitality during that time frame might give you some outsized returns over the next few years. Right. So I think it's really um, understanding where you are placing your emphasis, what you believe is going to be moving forward. And I think the biggest thing I might encourage people to, to consider is, um, you know, I, I believe fundamentally that a large portion of my portfolio should be geared more toward uh, investments that solve a must have versus solving a must want. Right. Um, and so people want vacations. They need housing. Um, companies uh, who are um, shipping containers all over need warehousing to 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 provide their logistics. Um, that that is a that is a must have for the now are, is e-commerce going to continue to grow? Is it going to go backwards? I think you ask yourself that question and you can find your own result. But. Uh, the biggest, I think, general advice I might give somebody is curiosity. Um, anything you can do to ask questions because no one gives you a book to fully understand everything that we're doing, right? Yeah. You have, you've gathered enough knowledge. You think you know what you're, that you've got enough data. But when you get on site, when you start talking to people, if something doesn't make sense, ask the question. Get the story, find out what's going on. And if you can then teach that, that shows a, a level of understanding that I think is really imperative. And if you can teach it um, and you believe in it, I think that's a good uh, investment thesis for yourself. Fully agree, Marcus. This has been great, sir. Um, I really appreciate your time today. Is there one last thing you'd like to leave us with or maybe a little self-promotion is okay as well? Uh, I, I would, uh, I'll just leave you with something I've been thinking about lately is, um, you know, we all have different, uh, if, if we see our personality as a house, we have multiple rooms and sometimes one room is in disarray and that's okay, but you got to keep the other rooms in good condition. And, um, in today's environment, I think it's really just important to maintain a good focus on the future and maintain stability and consistency because these fluctuations will come and go. But over the long run, you know, I think sticking with this is going to be a really critical means to thriving and profitability. So I, I really appreciate you having me on. If anybody wants to get in touch with me, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You can look at our LinkedIn page at West Capital uh, and our um, website is edgewestcap.com. Um, there's a questionnaire there that you can fill out and would love to connect with you. Sounds great. Put it on the show notes. Main takeaway, clean up your house, everyone. Yeah, keep a clean, good house. All right. Thank Marcus you, Arredondo. Thank you, sir. To everyone, you know what to do. Feel free to reach out. You know where to find me. And now you know where to find Marcus as well. Hope you found some value in today's episode and look forward to next week's episode. See you, everyone.